that I don't remember a lot of what happened before I was 18. And I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that I've sort of just blocked out. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we are getting better acquainted with Liz. Uh, hello, Liz. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm asking two sort of standard questions. And the first one is, how did you meet me? <laughs> um, that is pretty easy. Um, my current housemate is friends with Dave and said, uh, my friend has this um, pilot that he's having a reading for. Do you want to come along? It's at my friend Dave's house. And uh, it was about science fiction, which, yeah, I like quite a lot. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit. And I said, yeah, that sounds cool. If it wouldn't be too weird, I'd totally be up for it. So Chris brought me and, and our other housemate along. So that's how I met Dave. And uh, I like him a lot. Glad to know him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> And the other question is, what do you do now? Uh, well, the simplest explanation is I do employment policy. Um, my background is social policy. So I do education and employment and poverty policy and all that whole bag of social issues. But right now I work for a company that deals with unemployed people and getting them training, getting them back into work. And that that's what I'm doing at the moment. This Who knows? That'll change, but it'll probably still be policy in that sphere anyway <laughs> cool right so i'm just sort of going through the various things that you sort of suggested to me and that I've, i i suggested to you as well um and i guess the first thing to uh to mention that will probably already be clear to the english listeners <laughs> of the show is that you're you're not you're not you're not from around these parts uh not not in the most recent generations, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. In, in the more distant uh, generations, yes, I am. But no, um, I am natively from the U.S. and from Michigan more specifically. And I'm actually wearing a cool shirt, which um, That's right. most people wouldn't get unless you're from Michigan. If you are from Michigan, you'd get the shirt and you'd think it was pretty cool. Um, my my home state of Michigan is... is bit of an anomaly because it's two peninsulas that jut out into the Great Lakes. Oh, right. And so the shibboleth when you meet anyone from the Midwest or from Michigan is you put your hand up because the lower peninsula looks like a mitten and then you point to where you're from. So I always point to sort of in the middle, in the middle of the palm and say, I'm from East Lansing, Michigan. And this either means something to someone or it doesn't. And so my shirt that says America's high five means nothing to anybody not from the Midwest or Michigan. Right. So that's natively where I'm from. My dad's Canadian as well. So I have some claim to that and uh, I'm living here in London for the time being. And so you have sort of three, three nations that you're currently aware yeah. quite in depth of. <laughs> I, I would say that uh, there are three sort of countries that I tend to spend some time thinking about. And in policy terms, they're actually really interesting because they tend to run a spectrum of... In policy terms, they have these different uh, archetypes and of welfare states, and one of them is called the liberal model. And it happens to be that the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. are all a variation on the same liberal model. The liberal model. And so it, it's sort of a degree. I always like to think of the U.S. as the furthest Canada sort of in between and the U.K. on the other side, but 
the UK and Canada tend to sort of move around a bit. And Australia gets put in this bag, this bag as well, and they're all considered all part of the same grouping, so it's interesting to do comparative stuff between them, which is partially why I'm here and why I did my master's here for that purpose. And do you find that the UK has... has um, embraced you as an American? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's complicated by the fact that I can then immediately say, well, I'm also Canadian, if that helps. Because yeah. sometimes you do get people go, oh, you're American, and with that sort of look on their face, if, uh, I don't really know what to make of that, and then you also say, but I'm also Canadian, and they go, okay, fine. Okay, you go a bit you're Canadian, one of us. And you, you're, you're, you're a fellow human being rather you're, than an American. You're the great Commonwealth, that's fine. Come yeah. in, come in. Um, on the whole, though, people have been pretty good about it. I think part of the problem is with Americans, most people in America don't have passports, because America's very big, northern America, mm. massive, and you didn't for a long time need a passport to cross to Canada, and so you'd be able to move freely between the two, and it's a lot of space, a lot of different varieties of cultures, albeit the same sort of northern American dynamic and the same languages mostly, but a lot of different things you can experience, so a lot of Americans don't travel outside yeah. of northern america so you don't meet a lot of them so you get these visions of what they're like through the news and through tv and all that and it sort of colors your idea of what they are and most people will say to me a lot of the americans i've met are actually really great and to some degree that's because those are the americans that travel those are the ones <laughs> who do want to know more about you but that's fine it's worked well in my favor so are you proud to be an american i have always had a complicated relationship with being american um I think it has a lot to do with the dynamics of being sort of feeling like I was from two places at the same time. Um, I always make a bigger deal of being Canadian than I think I really have a right to be. <laughs> but um, I, my Canadian family is quite proud to be Canadian. And I think that has influenced my feelings on that. So I've always thought of it as important to s emphasize my Canadian heritage while people might say there is no Canadian heritage. I beg to differ on that. Um, but being proud to be American, yeah. Actually, if I break it down, I think I am because there is a lot of value in some of the ideals of the founding of the country. That is, yeah, fair. That I would support. Um, the idea of the Protestant work ethic is a good one. The idea that you work hard and you do well. I really like that. The idea that you work hard and you do well so we don't need to help you out. Less like. I don't, I don't like that very much. And that's part of why my policy inclination is always towards being over here and thinking about more social models that deal with providing a safety net. But on the whole, being American means that you get to sort of claim a lot of things. Um, it is the idea that there isn't a sameness to being American. There, There's a sameness in that you have the Bill of Rights and you respect those and that sort of thing. But there is an emphasis on being, I'm Irish-American, I'm Canadian-American, I'm African-American. You get to claim a lot of different things, and I'll consider that part of the great melting pot that is the U.S. And there's an idea of multiculturalism in the U.S. that is different from multiculturalism here and from Canada. In Canada, they call it the salad bowl, because you have a tendency to sort of keep more of your native background and your ethnic attributes than by embracing a Canadian overarching theory, whereas in America you keep that, but then you also become American. I don't know what it means to be American. I'm sure listeners could comment on that in great depth. Um, it's something that people have speculated on a lot. Um, I think it has a lot to do with freedom 
and that's something that we've used negatively in the past to justify things, but it the country is sort of founded on the idea that you want to be free to do an experiment and try something new. And that's a really interesting part of being American and something that I really like. And that freedom is sort of what allows me to feel comfortable traveling and exploring and doing things like that because my forefathers did it and they felt free to do it and being American means that I can experiment and someday bring some of that back home and hopefully enrich the country further. And everyone speaks your language because it's the lingua franca of the world at the moment. Yeah, that is a convenience. Um, I do have some very poor French and Italian that I studied <laughs> at great length and uh, sometimes I claim that I speak them, sometimes I claim I don't. Uh, if I was ever meeting anyone who spoke them in great depth, I would probably say, no, I don't really speak them, but I can hobble my way through conversations and reading. Well, that's much better uh, than <laughs> I, I've got no other languages, so that's, uh, that's pretty good going in my view. Being an American in London uh, and in the UK, do you notice very many kind of differences between the cultures or the way that people behave? Uh, being in the U- like the UK culture? Yeah, what's different here to America, I guess? Uh, sure, I mean... To a degree, my Canadian family is really Anglophile, and I grew up being a big Anglophile, so I definitely always thought, oh, someday I'm going to go over there and and I'm going to get to experience all those things that I've heard about. So I feel like I was sort of prepared to a degree, and then I read all these books. Um, Bill Bryson did this book, Notes from a Small Island, Mm -hmm. and um, Kate Fox did this book called Watching the English. And there's various books like this that are about how you can learn to spot what are the British eccentricities, what are the English eccentricities, how you can understand and break down conversation. Um, To a degree, I thought this was, oh, that's funny, and that's very breaking it down to the micro level, and I'm sure you can do that with every country, but that isn't a really big barrier. But I realized that the longer I've stayed here, the more my views on things have changed. Um, The way that my politeness has changed in a way that while I come from a part of the... Midwest, the Midwest of America, is considered very polite. And my Canadian family would say the Canadians are very polite. And yeah, so it's a cliche there. The, there's a cliche there. So I feel like I got raised to be very polite, but there's much more social con- constructs in the way that you behave and interact with other people here than I ever thought about on a day-to-day basis. And it took me a while to get used to them and sort of the period of actually getting to know someone as well and the steps that are involved in that and I can't even quite quantify them I can just say that I have gotten used to the the meter of it now Mm. and I kind of understand how that interaction will work and when I first moved here I didn't I didn't understand it and I didn't understand why it was taking me longer to get the same sort of intimacy that I would get in the states see now I think that's interesting from my point of view having lived in the UK all my life i I find that I'm, I'm the, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm quite like an American in that I very quickly get into high state levels of intimacy with people often way before they're comfortable with that. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this, these conversations is to learn a little bit more about how to sort of negotiate the social constructs. Mm, I would say that artists, they're not that I'm branding you as an artist, but I I do in my head brand you as an artist. Um, uh, I would say that with artists, I have found it's a lot easier. There's a lot more like openness. And I think it, I don't know, I don't want to put this label on you, but the desire to get the experiences and learn more about people and learn more about that to improve your art 
has led those interactions to be a lot easier. And I've always been drawn towards artists as a whole or intellectuals as, as, as a grouping. So maybe that's part of it. Cause it's sort of, you don't have to worry about those formalities mm. in the same way. Um, I think there's also a difference in terms of the class system in the UK, how, oh, yeah. how that there'll be, you'll, you'll find different ways that people interact politely is different in different classes. I think it's just as mm. complicated probably, but there are different ways being people still don't want to talk about their feelings quickly whatever class they're from (laughs) it's definitely the class thing is one of those things that got emphasized a lot in my master's course because i did my master's here in social policy and that that's a big thing that they rank they wrangle with in in all social issues and to a degree the idea of class isn't isn't the same in the u.s because we've got race is the big thing and income which we keep as separate from class and so class as a whole is something that I've been struggling with. And I keep feeling like maybe it's it's not as much of an issue. And then it comes up every once in a while. Someone like brings up classes. It's an active dynamic. And I think maybe I'm just not as attuned to it being not native. And that I can't quite get inside it. I think, I mean, I, I grew up in a working class friendship group, but not from a working class background. Um, and I associate very much with the issues around class. I think that maybe one of the things uh, that, that 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 Britain is sort of grappling with now is that classes have been completely uphauled by income. That that now mm. the rich are not necessarily the people who have hereditarily been rich, yeah. and that where 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 my heart is at is with the poorer people. And the poorer people are generally working class, but there are a lot of richer people who began as working class, and there are a lot of complications to the class system now. I think sometimes class can be as much of a, a barrier for helping poor yeah, people yeah. Uh, as a, the concept of class can be as much a barrier. But then at the same time, I know a lot of people who feel very strongly it's very hard to relate to music made by people who are rich and wealthy and uh, <laughs> with backgrounds that are unconnected to struggle I guess I see but I don't know if struggle is struggle is a very relative concept I I think that's true there's certainly there's issues that come into every life and you can't exactly pinpoint into that I was poor and I had to deal with it like you could deal with a crazy alcoholic parent and be wealthy and that would still be a barrier and struggle I guess struggle begets art is that something someone has said yeah I Um, think so and that's certainly the case and maybe that's slightly of a different issue but yeah we have that problem in social policy and research how do you define it do you define it in terms of class is that a useful indicator anymore do you define it in terms of income is that a useful indicator when it's not even on the census this year i noticed yeah yeah, that's true sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) come on Come on, as a social science researcher, I'd just like to put out there that I'm annoyed by that. <laughs> well, I, my, my, I always think with income, I think that people in this country are very scared to talk about income. Probably they are mm. everywhere. I d- probably it's the same in the US. And I think that's a real barrier. Because until you know how much somebody earns, in a way you don't really know what's fair between you and them. So, if, I mean, it would be an extreme version, but if everyone had the amount that they earn tattooed <laughs> on their forehead, you'd know who should buy the round. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, you'd know, you'd know, and people would have an idea about the, so often in workplaces you get people who you know earn a lot talking to people who earn little, 
and acting like they should be able to do the same things. Yeah. And if everyone was a bit more aware of income, rather than just hiding it all the time, being yeah. ashamed of it, that would be better, I think. I, I would actually say that that is a difference between the two cultures, because I do feel like we are more open talking about it in the US. Because certainly when we all finished university, we had various different levels of economic <laughs> affluence. Um, mm. Some of us were working for tiny charities that made no money. Some of us were PhD students. Some of us were working for big accountants firms that were actually able to like make what is considered a normal living wage. And so it was difficult those first few years sort of saying, I can't do that because I don't afford that. But eventually we got used to being more comfortable talking about it and saying, yes, you can do this and you can do that. And I can pay for this because I understand your situation that you're in and partially having us all flip back and forth between those suddenly having a job that pays well then suddenly being a student again and suddenly doing very poorly and then doing well just that back and forth I think helps a lot with your mm. understanding of that and if you never had that it would be very difficult it would be almost impossible to understand what someone's problems were if you've only ever had money well that is how I, I that's I think a big problem generally I, I, I think that Whilst rich people are obviously people too, if you don't have any understanding, it's hard for you to empathise or understand. And if you have a government that is made up of people who don't have any understanding of what it is to be poor, then you cannot be governed by people who understand most people's general existence. Yeah, taxation becomes a serious problem when you don't understand what the purpose behind taxation is. Yeah, that's, that's, a, very, <laughs> that's a very good point. Not that I'm saying that rich people don't understand it, but you... If, if you're rich and listening to this, you could stand to look at the tax code a little bit more to understand uh, the although, purposes behind Although the most rich <laughs> understand tax only too well. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> that's certainly true. Tax avoidance, not encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you go to university? I went to a university called Cornell in upstate New York. Uh, it's in a town called Ithaca, which is, as we used to say, very it was wonderful and that it had access to everything you need except it was about four hours from anywhere convenient um beautiful in the middle of these lakes and it was a really great place to go to university because it was sort of isolated you were sort of getting that full experience of being contained and i, I felt i i knew growing up in a university town as i did what people in the town felt like there's this difficult relationship between town and gown they used to call it between the town that sports the university and the university itself but I think people in Ithaca were very welcoming about it but um, I went to university at Cornell four years and uh, I really thought it was a great experience spent one summer there and that was amazing it's just it was a really great opportunity to be there I went to a sort of campus university so we were out in the countryside a bit but it sounds like you're in a little lot more on hill yeah, we're voice. literally above the town on, on a hill and then sort of spread out from that and sort of take it over and formed its own city. It's sort of amazing that you were my... I guess it's sort of strange to imagine that you would be in New, New York, yeah. nominally in New York, but have big lakes and stuff yeah. by you. Nithic is a really nice name because it's got connections with Odysseus to me. Well, a lot, a lot of that part of New York does. There's a lot of, like... Um, Ithaca and Utica, places that sound sort of Greek and have Greek meanings and Roman meanings to it too. I think there's a Romulus, um, which That's is cool. part of the myth of the founding of Rome. And um, I always used to, I really like the Odyssey as a story. Yeah. And I always used to 
talk about the parallel, maybe more than people wanted. But uh, <laughs> as a historian, I have a tendency to talk about things like that. Like, I'll talk about the mythology at great length, guys. Everyone's a little bit like, that's enough, Liz. It's okay. You don't need to read that passage. That's, cool. why, we, that's why we get on. I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about mytholo- <laughs> mythology for a long, long period of time. And I don't think I've met anybody in my life that's been that interested in doing it with me. Um, <laughs> it is a bit niche. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, you know, if they don't know the story, then where can they go? It's like, if you, you, we could both talk about Star Trek for a long time. And we both know that story. And we have done. Yeah, we have done. <laughs> Um, but other people also have know that story. That's kind of shared mythology, whereas ancient mythology is, 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 is not so known. That's an interesting thing, the idea of modern shared mythology. And people talk about that a lot with the U.S. And there's ideas behind it that are sort of creating the myth of what the U.S. was and how it was founded. And we, in cap, we use that to formulate our ideas of what it is to be American. And I think we do that in a lot of things now. We create a mythology, and then we use that to drive and define us. Um, Maybe not just at a nation-state level, but like maybe that's part of the class problem too. There's a mythology attached to it. There is a class mythology, definitely. Um, But that mythology still is in some respects a reality. That's the strange thing. Mm -hmm. Like It still is the case that people who go to a private school end up in uh, (laughs) Cambridge and Oxford more frequently than people who went to a comprehensive school. But that mythology is what you have to get over. You know, I yeah. think in a way, you know, that the, the, these castles, um, they can be for everyone. And uh, the, the, it, there is a sense that they're not for me. That's not for me. I, I'm not, I can't go there. What was New York like? Because you, everyone assumes because you're American and that New York <laughs> is, you'll know New York like the back of your hand, but you went there, you know, from the Midwest. So. Uh, well, I had a lot of, there's a lot of versions of New York. Um, and my mother's family and my father's family eventually moved to upstate New York, we call it. Upstate meaning anything that isn't New York City. And uh, they lived in Buffalo and Detroit in that area, and uh, that's very much what they used to call the Rust Belt, what they still call the Rust Belt, and it's where the industrial centers of the U.S. were, and now they're quite falling apart kind of towns, and they're trying to reclaim it and do a lot of reconstruction there. So that's sort of one version of New York. Then there's Ithaca, which is set in the middle, which is sort of where a tourist industry is because it's in these great finger lakes. There's actually wine there. You do wine tours. I've done a couple. It's really great. Um, and, the, and there's an idyllic view to it. And it's surrounded by farms and it's sort of pastoral. And then there's New York City. Yeah. And I moved... Moving to Ithaca wasn't a problem because everyone was sort of coming from everywhere. There were a lot of people coming from New York City. And there were a lot of things that I didn't quite understand about dealing with people from cosmopolitan backgrounds because there are cities where I'm from, near where I'm from, but they're not New York. New York is a beast completely different. And learning that and learning how, actually how they view things like class and race and money was very different. And that was all part of the educational experience of being at Cornell. Um, But in general, being from a university town, I think made that transition easy. Being away from home, because it is seven and a half hours as uh, the Baileys drive. Um, (laughs) And that's a bit difficult because it was the first time I lived away from home. And then I lived in New York City after I graduated from university, which is a completely different beast entirely. And that was a very funny experience being from the Midwest. Um, Why did you say funny? Um, I would say that 
people teased me for the way I said things and the accent as much in New York as they do here in London. Uh, I, uh, it's not that I use the wrong word like I do here, um, but it just, the way I said words, I say, um, there is a drink, it is carbonated and fizzy. Dave is drinking some of it right now. Yep. I would refer to it natively as pop. Other people call it soda or soft drink. <laughs> well, let's, I'll tell you what, <laughs> pop is much more common in this country as a word. See, I've come to the native roots. Certainly <laughs> the working class community that, that I, I knew growing up, they, they would say pop and yeah, but in fact both both the working class communities in the Midlands and in in, in, in Cardiff both said pop, I think. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I feel more included. Yeah, I mean no one no one would say soda. That would just be it's, weird. It's, it still feels weird. It's like there's so many British words that I try to use and I still sort of go, Oh, that's not right and soda is one of those words that I tried to learn in New York that feels not right. And I say things I say and I have really worked to try to not say, I say milk. And right. I should say milk or Maybe I should say it yet again differently now, but that was also a funny thing that I uh, got criticized for. Um, living in New York, being from the Midwest, is really difficult because you have a tendency to be very friendly with people in the Midwest. You just start talking to people. You don't, there aren't those barriers as much. You're not as worried about, will someone knife me if I talk to them? Mm -hmm. And that took me a long time to learn, to like eyes down, if someone approaches you, know how much you can respond and they won't keep talking to you if they're crazy because I was a crazy magnet. Me People too. would come I was up a crazy to me. Magnet for quite a few years. It's so hard. How do you you have to learn it? How to say, "Oh, this person is nuts. I must not engage." But your instinct is to be like, "Hello, how are you? You're another fellow human being. Let's engage." See, that's good. You've got a better instinct than me. When a crazy person <laughs> used to come up to me, I used to be like, Here's someone I can write about. Oh shit! Now they're now they're crazier than now they're gonna now they're a threat to my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't. Now, now I could be thinking. Oh yes, they're very useful for my research on uh, social issues. But no. no, that's good. You should look at other people as, as human beings rather than potential stories. I think that's a healthy, healthy attitude to have. So I mean, so New York experience. How does how did you do you find it similar to London? Similar, uh, but and I just went back to New York recently for for a friend's wedding, and I had sort of all kinds of different experiences this time around, having been gone now for nearly three years. Um, New York is much more intense, and in a lot of ways, it's very similar to London in terms of um, prices of things, in internationality. Uh, internationality is that a word? Yes. It's much more international. There's a lot more um, cultures and arts and all that. And that's a great thing about both cities. And the problem I find with New York is that there's all that. And then you feel sort of a compulsion to move very quickly and to be very aware of yourself at all times and how you're promoting yourself almost. You feel like in New York you have to push yourself forward and everyone is there competing. It's a big fishbowl and you got to push yourself forward and you got to do it quickly. And it, it, it was too tense. It was too tense for me and I didn't realize how tense it was until I would leave and I would come back. Like I would go away for a week and come back and I would almost be crying because I knew I was just having to go back into that and it was too much. And I had a great job, great friends, great experiences, would recommend everybody live in New York for a while, but it was too much. And I went to London and I said, oh wait, this is the pacing I need. 
See, that's kind of interesting to me because I've known people who've moved out of London because it was too intense, a similar, a similar way to, to what you're describing. I'm not one of those people, I don't think. And I was going through some stuff about that I thought when I came to London. And I came from Lancaster, which is, I guess, like the Midwest. It's, the nor- it's in the north. It's a small yeah. town. Uh, the pace of life is very slow, really. You don't realise it's slow when you're living in it, but when you yeah. when you come yeah. out of it, it becomes really clear. clear. When we came to London, it was just... Everything was faster, everything was intense, everything was expensive. It, there were so many different kinds of people with different kinds of needs and interests, and that was great and exciting, but you didn't have any time to do any of it because you had to make a living to be able to afford it. And it's interesting to me that the New York's faster and more than that than what London is. That's an interesting... Now, I don't know if this would be true for everyone. Of course, this was the progression of... I was... I always say this now, even though I'm not very old. I was young in New York. It was where I I left uni and I went there and I was like, I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to make it. Now, making it in my terms wasn't like being a Broadway actor or anything like that. Small dreams, small dreams. Just having, you know, money, income, life. Um, Simple. But... It, it did feel like you were struggling and you are fighting for that. And maybe if I'd started in London, I would have felt that way about London. I don't know if it's the time or it's the place. Uh-huh. And now I'm in a place in my life where I I have learned from that experience and I know how to work with London better. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'd have to get someone else who had a similar parallel experience to tell me for yeah, comparative yeah. purposes. A, a uh, natural experiment. The list from a parallel universe. Exactly. If we can find her and she could write into the show, that'd be great. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, if, 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 if there's someone from a parallel universe listening, you know, never mind Liz, give me, <laughs> some, give me some advice. Um, okay, I'm looking at a, a printout of something that you wrote to me and it says, oh post-university finding out who you are. Now, I guess we've sort of just covered that, I guess, mm. a little bit. Do you think you found yourself? Uh, found a version of myself um I think there's there's an old idea that like you sort of went into a job and you did that forever and then you had a midlife crisis because you realized you've been doing that forever Mm. and then you're like I should really do something different but you couldn't really change your career so you change your wife or your car or you had an affair and then you retire and that's what you did now you have about 10 different careers apparently so I found myself for now but I think that'll evolve and change too but maybe I found myself in the way that I now know that those changes are going to happen and I'm not as freaked out by change as I once was and I know things will happen and it's not nothing really is the end of the world everything is you can work with it and so in New York it was figuring out what 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 was reasonable for me and what what I could cope with and what I couldn't cope with and uh, if if I'm terribly broke, it's okay. Like I do have a lovely and supportive father who will come in and help me out <laughs> if all goes terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, and I do have good friends who will also help me out with that. And I can even move to, I, I think moving to New York and doing that sort of blind, move there without a job. Uh, I did have a flat sort of setup, but then we changed at the last possible minute. But I still had a friend there that I was going to be living with. But it was a big risk. So then when I got offers from universities to go to graduate school, and one of them happened to be London, and I'd never been to London, and I went and visited all the other universities and thought it through, and then I looked at the program, and I emailed someone here, and I said, nope, you know what, I'm just going to take the risk. Because, mm. again, I knew people here, I had a flat set up, and I was like, I've done it before. 
I know that I'm capable of doing that. Even though it's a foreign country, again, they still speak English. Yeah. Uh, it is a, comf- a country that I feel comfortable with in the ideal version that I had in my head before I knew the realities. Not, I still love this country, but I mean, now I know more. Um, but I knew what risks I could take. So I found out that about myself. Um, I think it's always still a process, but I found out my limits for this version of Liz. Mm -hmm. Now, if I settle down and have a partner and family, I don't know about that (laughs) since I'm not really a kid's person. Um, that might be a different finding out and figuring out what I want, whether I'd want to like live in the burbs or live in a city and that sort of thing. But for the Liz that exists now, I think I've was able to figure that out by sort of pushing those edges and those limits of what I thought I could do. I think it's a really valuable experience in terms of self-confidence going somewhere and making it work completely as a risk. I mean, that's in many ways what happened when I came to London, that it was a complete risk and didn't know how it was going to work out. And at the moment, it is working out absolutely amazingly. But uh, that could all change at any moment because of the current administration. Did the UK live up to your expectations? Yep. It did? It really did. Um, and, and in ways that I can't even quite, again, quantify. Um, for one, you drink a lot of tea. Which, uh, we do drink, you a, do lot drink tea, a lot yeah. of tea, which is something that I've always been a bit of an outlier for. In, in my family, at least on my dad's side, they're sort of a, you walk in the door, cup of tea, you walk in the door, cup of tea, you go out, you come back in, cup of tea. And I didn't, I thought this was a bit weird. My family's a bit on that I came over here and everybody did it. And yeah. I was like, ah, that, that is how it should be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but things like that, uh, were yeah, they met my expectations in that simple way of sort of feeling comfortable and at home in a way that I thought, you know, maybe wasn't a, a UK that existed anymore. Maybe it was a UK that once existed and I've made into my head this version of it and it won't be that way, but actually it was. Because that's an interesting thing, because I mean, when you say the word Anglophile, I th- well, you, which you said earlier, <laughs> I, I think, I don't know, I certainly often wince when I hear that and I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, American podcasts Mm. and there's a lot of people on those podcasts who describe themselves as Anglophiles yeah those things are probably accurate but they're like the cute parts of it all and actually there's all this other stuff like racial hatred and uh, you know uh, painful poverty and which stuff that you will know about from your areas of policy um and I guess, and also the weather is, I don't actually, I think that the, I think the, the UK gets a bad rap in terms of the weather, in that I think the weather's a hell of a lot better it than is. people in the UK seem to think it is. really is. I mean, you don't have as, I'm used to having defined seasons that mm. roll right into each other, but actually that's been more true than uh, I thought it would be. And um, if I'm in any way responsible for there being more snow for the last three years, I, I really apologize. I do bring snow with me when I come. I like snow. Um, I really love snow, and that was one of my concerns. I was like, oh, it's going to be cold and wet, but not snow. So it'll be just cold, wet rain, and that'll make me uncomfortable. But other than the fact that the sun sets much earlier than I'm used to in the winter... The weather's been great. Yeah. I'm not much of a... I'm not a huge sun person, so the fact that it's overcast a lot is actually nice. And the fact that it's really green and leafy is great. We were up in Scotland, and 
my friend was looking around and she's from Boston and she was like, oh my God, it's so green and fuzzy. Everything's green and fuzzy, mm. which is, I think, amazing that they've got that. Well, I think the people who really, <laughs> the, the thing is, the people who don't like the weather in the UK, and there are many of us, <laughs> um, I think it's often to do with the fact that if you live in a grey, horrible city, um, then the rain makes that worse. Yeah. But if you go out into the English countryside, the weather is beautiful because the countryside is beautiful mm-hmm. and they match. But when you've got this kind of man-made constructions, they don't always... I think a lot of the towns weren't really built to be in kind of connection with the with the weather. They yeah. were built for industrial reasons. Yeah. Uh, and so the northern towns where they feel very grey half an hour from those towns is beautiful countryside and a lot of the people in those towns from my experience rarely go and see that countryside and same with London I mean we got Epping Forest really nearby we can go and see that but most people don't go into the green and they just get miserable in in inner city London okay so I'm sort of using your own words to interview you which is weird isn't it that's very terrifying um Okay. I don't know how to. I actually don't know how to segue into this. My own words have uh, stopped yeah, me they from have. talking. Yeah, they have. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said I'll talk about family to some degree, as well, if that has a draw. And I think that family does have a draw. And then you say, but you'll have to decide if you want the doom and gloom side of that. And you know, I probably do want the gloom, doom and gloom side of that. Not if you don't want to talk about it. That's absolutely fine as you know but uh but what i'm looking to do here is to get some kind of personal pictures of different people who aren't famous sure and uh <laughs> i mean i've certainly got doom and gloom sides of my family which i'm happy to trade you with um but what but what did you mean by that uh well um it is complicated but i think it is an important part of who i am that i haven't given enough attention to and actually has been coming up a lot of late. Um, my mother had multiple sclerosis for all of my life, which uh, in her case was progressive. So that means that it's always getting worse. The acceleration of how much it's getting worse varies. And it's an autoimmune disease. And if you don't know anything about it, please Google and please donate to the MS Society. <laughs> um, it's a very under-researched disease, increasingly more researched, particularly in this country, I've been very pleased to see, but uh, to this day I still don't even know, they still don't even know a lot of what causes it, they don't even know what makes it worse, they don't know if it's hereditary to some degree. So my sister and I do every once in a while have these moments where we go, yeah, it could be possible that we could get diagnosed. Um, But we don't know. We don't know. It seems to be geographically related to a degree. And so it happens that where she grew up in upstate New York happens to be an epicenter. So that was sort of... Really? There's a a geographic... It's a geographic, weird geographical, there's groupings of it. And they think it might even have something to do with the amount of vitamin D you get. Wow. So in darker places, uh, places that get less sunlight, that might be a factor, which might be, again, why they do more about it in the UK. Um, so that has, in fact, colored a large degree of my life. And it meant to, to a large portion of people, I think, I think they would probably agree with this, that it meant I had to grow up faster. And 
she died when I was 17, which then meant I really had to grow up faster because um, it happened to coincide. And this isn't about me to <laughs> in this point, like this was a terrible thing that happened, but it also happened to coincide with a very important developmental phase for me when I was about to graduate from high school and go off to university. And that means it sort of shaped that period of time. And I say to a degree, that I that I don't remember a lot of what happened before I was 18 and I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that I've sort of just blocked out for you know protective things but I don't remember a lot of the details but you're young and you don't remember a lot of the details anyway um I remember it I mean she taught until she got very very sick at the end she taught she was a professor and taught throughout the entire process and so that's certainly influenced the way I view uh work work ethic and, and the role of feminism because my mother and my father much credit to my father are big feminists and she was one of the first two women in her department to be an economist and that was a big deal and they took the job based on where she got the job and they both worked at the university and and even when as I say it's a disease that gets progressively worse there are many types of MS but this is the type that gets progressively worse after she had my sister she had to be in a wheelchair um, there was a point at which she stopped being able to use most of her hands. And so it, it meant she changed the way she taught. And so the students would come up and they'd write the problems up on the projector and then they'd have to work it out with economics. I don't know if any of you have sat through an economics class. I don't know if you sat through an economics Maybe class, not. Dave. It, you gotta work with the material to understand the things that are going on. So it's actually a really, really important way of teaching. Mm. And it was a thing that was a consequence of this really terrible thing that was happening that I think actually probably really helped a lot of kids to a better understanding of economics. Um, and it meant that she had to interact with people in a different way. And uh, it meant that I interacted with the world in a different way. Mm. So I was very aware of disability issues for a long time growing up when a lot of people didn't even really understand what that meant. Um, and it's influenced my direction and policy to a degree too. And it's also influenced how we interact with people. It was very more about my family growing up. We were a very closed unit, the four of us, my dad, my mom, and my sister and I. And then our extended family, I'm very close to my grandparents because we would always go back once a month. And I, I don't know how much the disease was factor in that, how much it's just that my parents are really fond of their parents mm. um, and got along with them really well. So I was very family focused and friends, friend groups weren't the same growing up that they were when I got to university. Mm. And it's not that they're bad or, or they're not as good. They're just very different. They're people I grew up with who understood that was going on, but they weren't like family. They were friends. And then when I went to university, because this happened, because she died right when I was leaving home, I had to essentially create a new family. So I'm very close to my friends from university. And it is, I talk about it, weddings and things, like it's a little tribe. Because they were the people that I had to create systems with and create a new Liz with. And we were, I was talking with one of them recently, and she said, you know, you've changed a lot from the person you were when you were 18. And I said, yeah, I think I'm actually closer to the person I was at 16. Uh, right. Which is a weird thing to say, but I think it took me a while, and I wasn't aware of how much it took to get past what had happened because you can go to a therapist and you can deal with that and I know you've had some things in your background that never been to a therapist that's why I'm doing this show <laughs> yeah I've never been to one either 
and people were like, maybe you should go. And I said, I, I don't know. I know there are plenty of times when therapy does help, but I think there's a certain value in talking to your friends. Friends, I always think friends and family are much, they know you better. That's it. They know what's, what's going on and what are the factors that are affecting it. And there's something at stake. If a, a friend cares for you, a therapist, you're just paying them money. And there, there is there is some value to an objective point of view. But I much prefer someone who, yeah, who cares to me, talking to me about these sorts of things. It's funny. I mean, I, I don't know. One thing I know is that I didn't have as bad a, bad a background as many people. And that there are very different ways that you can have doom yeah, and gloom there's, in you. There's totally different degrees. Um, and they affect you in different ways. I mean, that sounds absolutely absolutely devastating to me but I mean what's really impressive you know is that people move on from those kind of experiences I mean I I was 17 when my dad had a quadruple heart bypass but he survived but it's terrifying yeah oh, fucking hell it was terrifying yeah it, it's the same except okay so the outcome is different yeah. and, and it is a very different outcome but that fear that your world is changing, and it does change, even if not to the same degree. It changes forever. Mm. And, yeah, that must have been well, the same thing. The first, he had a heart attack when I was six or something, I think. It's hard for me to pinpoint it. But that's when I realised he could die, yeah. Um, and <clears throat> was likely to die. Uh, surprisingly enough, he's actually lived for ages, and he's still alive <laughs> and he's in the podcast. But, I mean, I wasn't to know that then. Uh, and I think I'm a bit more doom and gloom than some of my siblings anyway, so I just didn't immediately start <laughs> worrying about that all the time. But it's funny that you say, getting back to who you were when you were seven, 16, I often feel like I'm trying to get back to myself a lot, a lot earlier than that. I'm trying to get back to myself, I don't know, sort of eight or five or something, but... When I was all happy and sunny and disposition. And everything was wonderful and everything was new and shiny yeah. and exciting. I, I think we all are trying to recapture that to a degree. And I think maybe, again, putting the artist label on you, artists even more so um, are trying to access that almost childlike wonder of things. Um, it, it's a great feeling and you do you still get flashes of it, but it's really hard to get back to that. It's also knowing that things are... It's also knowing things for sure, mm. you know? I mean, I'm not saying that yeah. I was an absolutist when I was a kid, but I, I just, I didn't worry about, like, I, I think there's a lot more worry as an adult and yeah. as a teenager, and there's a lot more <clears throat> cynicism and stuff creeps in, and so you can't just relax. You, you always got to be worried about these other things. Yeah, you sort of, you think that things are black and white as a kid, because you are taught that that's how you raise children. You say, yes, no. You don't say maybe until they become an adult. And that's when you learn that actually the world is more shades of grey than you ever thought it was going that's to be. That's right, yeah. So, are you, and you're, so you went away to university and your dad was still home? My dad and my sister were still, still home. home. And I, I talked to him about this recently. Um, and he said, I thought recently that it was much harder for you in some ways because of that. Because we had each other. And that's true. And they are, um, I love, love them both, but they are a lot closer. And then I think I will be, I won't ever have that relationship that they had because they had four years, just the two of them. And so they sort of 
I don't know what happened. I don't actually. <laughs> it must have been really in, it an intense. Must have been really hard. For them, but yeah. it's like they are really close, and certainly my sister feels that like that's one of the most fundamental relationships in her life. And definitely, like my relationship to my father is very fundamental. My relationship to her is very fundamental. But there's a bond there, and I had a very close bond to my mother, and so that was what is a bit harder because I feel like very close to her and my sister didn't even get to know her so my father is almost her mother her father her everything so it's an even more intense relationship you kind of think that that probably happens to a degree with people who are divorced when you're alone with one parent you get that sort of almost they are your world and yeah it's i mean yeah. I, i'm a child of a divorced family but it's not mm. a very con- it's not a very usual one. My dad generally lived in the same house as his ex-wife, so uh, I don't really know what it's like to be just with one or the other, apart from three, for a few years in Coventry, I was going to my dad's at weekends and my mum's in the week. And I think that that's when me and my dad were able to get our most closest even though he's lived with me before and after that was the sort of time when I could get close to him uh, because it was a like you say a, an exclusive relationship yeah. so it's a a very sort of sad area to to have, to, to have got into but I'm, in gloom. It, 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 <laughs> you told you told it in a very undoom and gloom way which I think is probably very American uh, well, I mean, <laughs> which is a ridiculous stereotype, but not true. It is. It is ridiculous. It's pro- provocative, uh, but. but I mean, you can like. There's a sad truth, listeners, in that everyone you know is going to die. Yeah. And it's a question of when you learn that and how you then use it going forward. Um, death still shocks and surprises me and upsets me, but. It's, it's different for me now, and the way that I interact with people who've just lost someone is very different from how a lot of other people do. Mm. And it's, it's doom and it's gloom, but these are the experiences that shape you. And the pain that you have uh, drives you forward in a different way. And you can sort of spend your life being miserable and upset and being like, I was done wrong. Or you can try to use that as a way to propel yourself forward. And I think that's what, to be honest, what my mother would have wanted. She wouldn't. Mm. Like, she was certainly doing that. She wasn't like, I've been done wrong by the fact that I've got this terrible degenerative disease that's robbing me of what is a very bright future. I'm still going to, she said, I'm still going to have kids, even though they're telling me not to. Um, I'm still going to teach. I'm still going to do this. So she could do that. I can certainly do it. Yeah, yeah. Definitely true. I mean, there's a lot that we can learn from the strengths of our parents and their, their choices, good or bad choices in a way. You're the older sister, mm. and that's why you kind of were the one who who went away first from home. Well, yeah. Um, do you think? I don't know. I'm a middle child. It's very strange. Although I think I've been sort of the older one and the younger one because it's six years. So there have been times when I've been the oldest in the house, and I moved away when my sister was still at home. You said that you sort of, you left and uh, you were stronger for it and you've explained the sort of scenario, but do you, do you have any kind of, I guess what I have is 
a lot of guilt that I wasn't there when my sister might have needed me more. Mm. And I, in my case, I kind of deliberately didn't go back for my own welfare. Um, you went back, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I have six different types of guilt, and someone recently pointed six. out. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not going to quantify them and go through them and categorize them, but no, I mean, like, I am a person who experiences guilt. Um, in, in, I don't think a debilitative way, but mm. I, I do worry about other people and think about how it'll affect other people and maybe a little bit too much, but we're four years apart which makes it just the exact amount of time that she was having to go through what we call high school, which is um, essentially 15 to 18, your last bit of secondary school. And um, that meant she was doing that while I was doing university, because university in the U.S. is four years. So it was always going to be that chunk I was not going to be there, which Mm. is, yeah, the most important part. The most important part where you could really use a female influence. I hope that she feels that I was there for her, but I wasn't physically there for her except during the summers. And I hope that we are very close now, um, even though she lives in Seattle and I live in London, which geographically we're not close, but uh, in all other ways, we're very close. And um, it's hard because what do you say to a 14 year old or a 15 year old about what's happening to them? And also try to like keep your own life going. And uh, there is a lot of guilt for other reasons, but I don't think the guilt of not being there has ever been something that's been prevalent in my life because my dad has done a really good job of being there for her. Mm. And she's done a good job of being there for him. Um, If they weren't such strong people and if they didn't have such of a quality relationship, maybe I would feel a lot guiltier. But that would be... I'd have to have a very different father <laughs> yeah, I think <it's, laughs> for that to be true. <laughs> I mean, I think it's true, as you say, sort of saying that. I mean, I think that that's where the comparisons are definitely very different. That that you left behind you a family that was in pain but was still functional, whereas my family didn't have that kind of pain but maybe wasn't functional <laughs> so maybe that was that's the way the difference comes in terms of when I look back I just think maybe maybe I could have made things better but actually as I get older I think maybe I probably couldn't have done I have maybe not many friends who are middle siblings but who are older siblings who have parallel experiences to you who had a younger sibling who they felt somewhat the parent for and then when they went away they felt a bit like they abandoned them um and then they have that lingering guilt. But those people have all turned out all right. Yeah. Yeah. Your sister's probably turned out all right. My sister's (laughs) definitely turned out more than all right. And I'm very, very um, privileged to be, as an adult, pretty close to her, I think, which was, was, will have, I I don't know if she ever listens to this, but I'm sure it would have surprised both of our past selves that we would turn out to be such good friends. Well, I think it surprised me and my sister, even though we're girls and sisters should be close, but still four years is a lot. And what's the age difference with you guys again? Six years. Yeah. It, it, there's a certain... Two years seems to be... You're very close. And then get, when you get past that, you sort of enter a weird phase where there is sort of a, enough of a developmental gap. That you have to wait till you're an adult. You have to wait till you're grown up. Mm. And she said that to me not that long ago, that like the people that I'm glad we are friends. I'm glad that we've gotten to the point in our lives where we can be 
grown-ups and friends. We're actually, me and my, me and my little sister, me and my older brother, there's exactly six years between, not exactly, but there's six years between each of us, which meant that whenever one of us was starting a school, the other one would be finishing it. So when my first year of secondary school was my brother's mm. last year of secondary school, and the same with my sister. And we were doing that, except in the US it's because of the four yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. The sort of last thing, just in the final few minutes, um, that I've been asking everybody uh, is, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Do I have anything that I'd like to plug? Yeah. Oh, hundreds of things. Um, basically, uh, I have done a lot of work in in the arts and in charities, so there's a lot of organizations that I think are pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, the one the one that I'm sort of beginning to work with now, and I haven't done much work with them yet, is a little performing arts space in Brixton called the Brick Box, and they're trying to do this really interesting thing where they're trying to take over these old covered markets, take over a bit of them in all these towns and all these little communities that have sort of gone out of fashion as supermarkets and chains have taken over, and they're trying to reclaim it and try to make it more community involved and try to make it a space where people can go, and I think it's a really interesting idea, and hopefully I'll get to be more a part of it, and I would recommend everybody checking it out because they are thinking about expanding, not just within London, but outside of London and the UK. I'd I don't know if there's really anything beyond the UK, but you never know. Check back. Um, beyond that, uh, I'm on the Twitter, um, and I follow a lot of really great organizations there. And what's your Twitter handle again? Oh, yeah, it's um, Veritas Gray. Yeah, because when you're 16, you're really smart, and you think that if you put Latin in it, it'll make it really clever. Yeah. Um, what does that mean, anyway? It Veritas is Latin for truth. Right. And it meant that the truth is gray. Oh, it's, it's quite a nice meaning. Yeah. It is a nice meaning. It's better than Goose Fat 101. <laughs> which is fucking meaningless as well. And that's great with an E in the British sense, not and the A in the American sense, just so everyone's clear. But th- there's a lot of really great organizations, both within the UK and within the US, that I think are worth looking into. Ones that are involved with children's issues, ones that are involved with disability issues, ones that are involved with, as I say, MS, like the MS Society. Um, there's some great performing arts centers, um, Symphony Space, which I used to work with in the States, and they do this great Selected Shorts podcast, which if any of you listen to national radio, yeah, it's really worth a listen to. And, well, I, Dave and I both really like Radio Lab. Which yeah, is Radio Lab's brilliant. Another benefit of public radio in the States, and I would plug that. <laughs> this is what this section is for. I mean, if you know, people have listened to you and been interested in you, then I think they'll probably be interested in some of the things that you, yeah. you're interested in. I say if you're interested in charity work at all, like have a hunt through with the people I follow on Twitter, but even, you know. Send us an email, and I can recommend you some people who you should talk to. Yeah, really. If you, yeah. So if any, send me an email, then I'll certainly pass it on to Liz. <laughs> uh, assuming that she's still speaking to me. But, uh, <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, thanks. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure getting acquainted with you. Thanks for having me, Dave. Okay. Should we say goodbye to the listeners? Yeah. Bye, listeners. Bye, bye. <laughs> You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Facebook, 
it's Getting Better Acquainted, have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. Both yeah, we waved at the <laughs> way to this, brilliant. As if they're listening <laughs> to the movement of my hands.